The first 11 verses of John chapter 2 present for us one of the most profound sections of Scripture, and maybe the entire Bible, in all seriousness. Especially when you understand the implications of what's actually happening. This miracle, recorded in these 11 verses, of Jesus turning water into wine, are not only his first of all of his miracles, but with maybe the exception of the resurrection, may be the most significant. As we're going to approach uh, this passage this morning, we're going to read through the entirety of the text, then we're going to unpack what happens, and then we're going to discuss the significance behind it all as we close the study. So if you join me, John chapter 2, we're going to read the whole passage, all 11 verses. John writing, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, That was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In order to unpack what's actually happening, let's begin by setting the scene. Verses 1 and 2 record that on the third day there was a wedding. A wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. This is the scene. After calling Philip and this exchange with Nathaniel at the close of John chapter 1. Nathaniel, Philip making decisions to become followers of Christ in their own right. It appears that Jesus intentionally leaves Bethabara, as was his intention, and he heads north along the Jordan River Valley back up to the Sea of Galilee specifically to attend this wedding. Not only had he been invited, but it seems Jesus took his RSVP very seriously. When John writes that on the third day there was a wedding, From the flow of his narrative, it's likely this was three days from the close of chapter 1, this interaction with Philip and Nathanael. Literally, the text could read, on the third day from departing Bethabara, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now that is such a significant detail that we're going to leave our our discussion of it to the end of the study. This town, Cana, Cana of Galilee, it's a really interesting place. Historically, we know she was a small Jewish settlement 
situated on the far western shore of the Sea of Galilee, near a larger town known as Capernaum, which was, notably, a short distance from the city of Nazareth. Now, if you're a student of such things, Cana was so tiny. Of all the gospel writers, only John is the one that mentions her. Instead, the other authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to lump Cana in with Capernaum. Keep in mind, in those days, a wedding. A wedding was a big deal. It was a community affair, especially in a small town like Cana, where everyone knew everyone else. Also, since we see that there were servants helping to facilitate the wedding, it's safe for us to surmise that this was quite a party, especially for such a small place. Aside from the fact that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, with his disciples at this point, probably including Andrew and John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, we're also told that the mother of Jesus was there. Seems Mary, who interestingly enough is never mentioned by name in John's gospel, only referred to as the mother of Jesus. It would seem though that Mary plays some type of role in facilitating the wedding itself. We know this because she ends up having the authority. She senses responsibility when the wine runs out, but then she has authority to command these servants to act upon Jesus's commands. There's also a good chance that because of this connection, the bridal party was either Jesus's family or in some way close personal friends with the family. On a far side note, because Joseph is not mentioned at all in this passage and never mentioned in Jesus's earthly ministry, it's likely by this point that Mary was likely a widow, that Joseph had passed away. Now, before we examine what happens during the tail end of these festivities, I do want to make one side observation. I love this phrase, and if you're known to highlight or underline, I'd encourage you to do this. I love the phrase, Jesus was invited to the wedding. I love that. Like whoever this unnamed bride and groom happened to be, they really do make a wise decision to invite Jesus to be present for the most significant event in their lives, their wedding day. Now, aside from the obvious importance of including Jesus in your wedding day, do you know Jesus wants to be included in all of the significant events that occur in your life? That he wants to be a part of it. He wants to be there. He wants to be present. And because Jesus' very presence tends to naturally lead to his active involvement and subsequent blessing, you should invite Jesus to be a part of everything, the birth of a child, purchasing of a new home. And you know, my guess is that if you invite Jesus, he'll make it a priority to attend. Also, if there happens to be some event on your calendar that you don't feel comfortable inviting Jesus to attend, it's probably a good indication you have no business attending that event either. Just a rule of thumb. As this party continues, John tells us a crisis reaches critical mass. Verse 3 says that when they ran out of wine, 
the mother of Jesus comes and she says to him, they have no wine. Now, apart from this being an obvious party foul, running out of booze, since wine brought with it joy, rabbinical tradition clearly stated that a host, not just a party, but specifically a wedding, they could never run out of wine. This was a serious cultural faux pas, something you didn't do. This was a major crisis. Now, since this is the case, and Mary was undoubtedly involved in the execution of the wedding, she comes to Jesus with her concern. She declares they have no wine. This was a problem. This was an emergency. This needed to be remedied. The implications of bringing this crisis to Jesus, to his attention, seems to be that Mary wanted Jesus to do something about it. That Mary brings the issue to Jesus, this issue of there being no wine, for Jesus to then rectify the problem. (laughs) Admittedly, though, I think we can agree that Jesus' response to Mary, it comes across kind kind of oddly, doesn't it? He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Kind of seems a little snooty, doesn't it? And if this verse doesn't strike you as bizarre, next time your mother calls you and asks you to do something, you just reply to her, woman, and see what follows. Nothing good comes from it. Like, I can't even imagine what my reaction would be if I saw Quincy or Theo turn to their mother and say, woman, I'd see, I'd see red. I would, I would lose my mind. Now, for starters, in the original language here, the idea conveyed behind this word that Jesus uses, this word woman, you should note it's very difficult to translate it from Koine Greek into English. The word, though it maintains a measure of respect, it's not, it's not a disrespectful term, but what the word does accomplish is that it implies a measure of relational separation. So Jesus was not being rude, but he was making a point. The point is that it would appear Jesus is letting Mary He's letting her know that since his ministry was about to begin, his relationship with her was now about to change. Though Mary would always be Jesus' mom. And I'm sure without a doubt that Jesus always lived in such a way to honor the important role that she held in his life. Jesus is wanting Mary to realize that from this point forward, the will of his heavenly father would take precedent. In a profound way, Jesus is taking a moment here to reconstitute his relationship with Mary away from mother and son and instead disciple and master. It may also be that John's emphasis here of Jesus' use of this term woman This is not the last time Jesus will do this. When he's on the cross, he will refer to Mary using this term woman as he's giving her responsibility, her care over to John. The use of this term woman by John may be that he's doing this to draw his audience's attention 
back to Mary's real identity and subsequently Jesus' real identity. And where would John point us to to accomplish this? The book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, verse 15, when God is cursing Satan, he makes this prophetic statement. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he, capital he, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy we find in scripture, ultimately producing that it would be through the seed of the woman, a virgin birth, that the Messiah would be given, the savior of the world would come, Jesus. And so using this term woman, maybe John is pointing our attention back to these things. Now, further evidence of Jesus reconstituting the nature of their relationship can be found in the next question. The question that Jesus asks Mary in response to her implied request concerning the wine. He asks, after saying, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Greek scholar Ed, Edgar J. Goodspeed, he observes that Jesus is implying an independence of action in this request. He also adds that this too lacks an English equivalent, believing that the question is more of a declarative statement aimed at Mary. He translates it as, do not direct me, reconstitutes the relationship and says, you don't have the role or the, the authority to tell me what to do. Now, once again, though Jesus has spent a great portion of his life submitting himself to the supervision of his mom, from this moment forward, Mary will no longer have such a place of authority. Now, following this important exchange, Jesus then says something else interesting. He declares, my hour has not yet come. Now, I'm going to admit to you up front that I have wrestled with this statement all week. I've written pages of notes on this statement and then came to the conclusion on rereading them that I was wrong. And so I deleted them. I did this multiple times, trying to unpack the significance of this statement and the context of everything that's happening. And I have wrestled all week long. It's a difficult one. <clears throat> On the surface, the plain reading suggests that Jesus is telling Mary that it's not time for him to begin his ministry. And you will hear many of the commentators make this statement, that Jesus said, my time hasn't come. The time to start my ministry hasn't arrived. The only problem with that way of interpreting the statement is that directly following this reconstitution of his relational priorities from his earthly mother to heavenly father, what does Jesus do? He says, my hour has not yet come. Then he goes around and he does the miracle anyway. In effect, doing what Mary wanted in the first place. If his hour had not yet come, you have to ask, why does Jesus perform a miracle? In a measure of theological gymnastics, one commentator that I read, I'll leave his name out, he tries to reconcile this point by, by claiming that between Jesus' statement to Mary, my hour has not yet come, and the next verse when he gives the servant's instructions, Jesus actually gets the okay. 
from his heavenly father that the time to begin the ministry had indeed arrived. Kind of implying Mary was more in tune with the will of the father than Jesus. With respect, that particular reading, way of of interpreting, I, I find to be nonsense. Now, aside from the plain reading, this whole phrase, it gets further complicated. When you come to read this statement in the larger context of John's gospel, and if you don't care about any of this, just tune me out for a few minutes. You'll lose the ending of the study, but that's okay. I find this interesting. In John 7, verse 6, 7, verse 8, 7, verse 30, and 8, verse 20, we find variations of this phrase repeated by Jesus that his time had not yet come. At various points in his earthly ministry, Jesus would repeat this statement, my time has not yet come. However, once the cross and the resurrection and the ascension come into view, when the timeline gets close, Jesus then will repeatedly say, the hour has come. Over and over and over again, John 12, 23, John 12, 27, John 13, 1, John 16, 32, John 17, 1. There is no question the hour Jesus references in this moment to Mary is the moment that he, as the Lamb of God, will be offered to die for the sins of the world. This is the hour he's talking about. The hour when he would then be resurrected after three days in the tomb, when he would be ultimately ascending to heaven, taking his rightful place in glory at the right hand of his father. This is the hour in context to John's gospel he's referring to. So the question coming back, how does this statement have any relevance to Mary's request about wine running out? The truth is that in its literal plain reading, this literal context, I'm convinced that Jesus' statement, my hour has not yet come, doesn't make any sense at all. That said, I'm not sure that it's supposed to make sense. Now keep in mind, John describes the entire exchange here. So this whole story we read, right? John places into a certain context. Look back at verse 11. The context that John establishes for how we're to see this miracle, he defines it as the beginning of signs. Jesus did in Cana signs, John adds, that intend to do what? Manifest his glory and cause his disciples to believe in him. In a way, I don't believe in the moment. Even John understood what Jesus was saying until the larger purpose behind the miracle comes into view after Jesus' hour had actually come. Don't forget, John's actually telling us that there is more to the miracle than its plain reading. It's the beginning of signs, something that that communicates something much, much deeper. And once again, we'll leave that idea there for us to come back to at the end of the study. I love Mary's response. As John recalls the scene, he notes how Mary, Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. And Mary, like any mother, doesn't listen and turns to the servants. And she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Can you think of a a better bit of advice 
for just about any scenario you might ever face. Zach, I'm really struggling in my marriage. I don't know what to do. You know what? Whatever Jesus says to you, <laughs> you should do that. Zach, I'm really struggling at work. I've got this boss. He's, he's, a, he's a total jerkwad. He's, he's running me ragged. I just don't know. You know what? Here's my advice. Whatever Jesus says to do, just do that. Like, really, can you come up with a better bit of advice that kind of applies to everything? And it's not a cop-out. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. I also love the fact that these are the only words recorded in John's Gospel of Mary. Which for any of my Roman Catholic friends who pray to Mary and want a response, Mary is saying to you, whatever Jesus says, <laughs> you should do that. These servants. The servants are now equipped. Equipped with some marching orders, right? Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So John, he continues, he's setting the scene. He adds an interesting detail. He says that there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. And these, these stone pots, he says, they, they, would, they would hold somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons of water apiece. Not exact, an approximation. These large pots provided enough water to allow these Jewish guests to the wedding to cleanse themselves before the wedding feast, according to the manner of purification that's outlined in the law, and more specifically, Jewish traditions, man-made traditions. Now, aside from the practical purposes of, of this, there were religious connotations behind the washing itself. Now, as John is recounting the story, he remembers how Jesus then instructs the servants to fill the water pots with water, Presumably they were empty, had already been used. And once you've done this, to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And not only did these servants obey Jesus, filling these water pots to the brim, but John would never forget what happened as they drew some out and presented it to the master. Let's just look at it again. Verses 9 and 10 records that when the master had tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master called the bridegroom and said, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. When the, when the guests are well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. He's shocked. He's blown away. Now, though these water pots had been clearly fill, filled with water, the text tells us this. John tells us that by the time the water reaches the lips of the master of the feast, it had been made wine. We're not told when it was made wine. At what point in the process? Was it in the water pots? Was it when they drew it out? Was it upon the delivery? Was it water all the way until he takes a drink? We don't know, other than it, at some point, was made wine. And not just any wine. But John adds that it was a wine of such incredible quality that it defied basic party logic. Now, before I get to that, the Greek word here, made, literally means that wine came into existence. It's to speak something out of nothing. If you read up how wine is developed and the process behind it, this was quite a miracle that in a moment, Jesus was able to do this. Party logic. Any party planner understands 
that you always start the night off by offering your guests drinks of a top-shelf quality, you know, when everyone is sober. But then once your guests have loosened up, the master actually says, have well drunk, then there's no problem, you know, switching over to the bottom-shelf booze, since no one can really at that juncture tell the difference. The master here, though, is blown away that the bridegroom had kept the good wine until the end. Now, before we continue, I need to point out that the word used here for wine in the Greek, when you translate it into English, is the word wine. It's alcohol. It's not grape juice, as teetotalers postulate. It's wine, the same wine that we have. Furthermore, the statement, when the guests have well drunk, can be translated, when the guests are drunk, when they're hammered, when they're tipsy, which is, again, very hard to accomplish on Welch's or watered-down wine. And though no one advocates for drunkenness, you can't escape the reality that Jesus' very first miracle is taking water and translating it, transforming it, making it into alcohol. Wine. Now, I don't want this message to take a right turn into a discussion about alcohol, nor do I want to take the time to establish the lengthy case that can be made that the Bible nor Jesus ever calls for abstinence. I wouldn't want to take time, you know, to go down that rabbit hole. However, in my preparations, I did run across a great three-point recommendation by David Guzik. How you should drink if you do choose to. One, I'll go through them very quickly. If you're under bondage to alcohol and you have an addiction, don't drink. It's a sin. Two, if you do drink, don't get drunk. Not only does the Bible present drunkenness as a sin, but it's a danger. can have major repercussions. And thirdly, and I thought this was a great one, when drinking, be excessive in your moderation. Though you're not prohibited to drink, Christians are called to be sober-minded. I think that's great advice. The story John records for us is straightforward, right? Very quickly, let's recap. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana that his mother Mary is involved in facilitating. The celebration is going swimmingly until they run out of wine. Whether this was Mary's fault or not, we do know she feels responsible to act, so she comes to Jesus for help. Though Jesus does take a moment to reconstitute the relationship he has with his mother, he does proceed to instruct the servants to fill up six pots of stone with water that were typically used for ceremonial cleansing, draw some of the water out, present it to the master of the feast. In an incredible act of faith, the servants obey Jesus. At some point in the process, the water they draw out miraculously transforms into a high-quality wine. That's the story. Now, let's take some time and let's unpack what's actually happening like the significance behind what's occurring at this wedding. And don't forget, because John defines in verse 11 as what occurs being a sign, there is more to the miracle than what the plain reading 
presents. Let's begin with the timing of the miracle. It's not an accident that in the flow of John's gospel of grace, in the overt ways that John intentionally parallels the Genesis record, presenting Jesus' recreation of God's original created order marred by sin, that this miracle, of all miracles turning water into wine, occurred, John 2 verse 1, on the third day. That is not an accident at all. Now, follow me for a second. I want you to flip back to John 1. Once you leave the opening thesis that John provides in the first 18 verses concerning Jesus and his ministry, John 1 verse 19 effectively begins for us the first day when our author John records an interaction that John the baptizer has with the religious leaders. So John 1 verse 19, we have day one. But then look down to verse 29. We read, that the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the next few verses, John will record the event of Jesus' baptism. Day two. Now look down at verse 35, which will mark day three. We read, again, the next day, day three, John stood with two of his disciples. And we discussed this last Sunday This is the day in which Andrew and John, as well as Peter, will have a personal, life-changing encounter with Christ. Look at verse 43, though. After these things, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, so he finds Philip and says, follow me. And then he also has this interaction with Nathanael. All of this included in day four. You with me at this point? Day four. Then you get to John 2, verse 1. A clear context that John's establishing. He writes, the third day, on the third day, from what? The third day from the fourth. This story occurs. The third day from the fourth would place this wedding and Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine taking place three, four, Four plus three is what? On the seventh day of a recreation narrative that John is establishing. Now, while on the original seventh day of creation, what happened? God rested, right? Six days God worked, the seventh he rested. On this though, the seventh day of recreation, what Jesus has come to do to fix the problem of sin, the world that's been marred and destroyed by sin. On this seventh day of recreation, is Jesus resting? No, Jesus is busy at work. It's also not an accident that on both seventh days, the first one and this one, we have God involved in a wedding celebration, celebrating a marriage. Genesis 2 verse 1, let me just read it. It opens, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all the work, which he had created and made. Then you contrast John 2 verse 1, opening on the third day, the seventh, there was a wedding in Cana. 
and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. While God rested in Genesis, on this seventh day, John records that a pressing issue arose that demanded Jesus act immediately to save what? A wedding. Now, our time this morning is limited. But please understand, the law of first mention, like when you find something first mentioned in the Bible, it sets a trajectory for the rest of the way that you read it, interpret it. The law of first mention, mention, Jesus ceasing from his work on the first seventh day. It indicates that the Sabbath day had nothing to do with man's work and was instead designed to recognize the completion of God's work. That's what the Sabbath was all about. The point of the Sabbath and why Moses would declare it to be holy was that A, it served as a constant reminder that it was only through God's work that humanity was originally afforded a relationship with him on the seventh day. And two, the Sabbath represented that since our subsequent actions ruined that relationship, it would only be and could only be through a reinstitution of God's work that our relationship with him would ever be restored. In a way, Moses later commanding in Exodus that the people cease from their work on the Sabbath, the whole point of it was to illustrate the reality that humanity needed to stop working. Why? Because they could never fix a problem that only God could remedy. The Sabbath day was instituted to emphasize that God's favor could only be restored through his work and not ours. It's why you weren't to work on the Sabbath. There was no work you could do anyway. The seventh day illustrated God's grace. Now, though God rested on this original seventh day, as a consequence of sin, the fall, man, separating himself from his creator, God promptly ended his rest and busied himself with the work of redemption. It's what the whole Old Testament is about. You see, the Sabbath day should remind you that the only way your relationship with God could be restored would not be through your work, your best attempts, but rather through the completion of God's perfect work that could only be accomplished in Jesus. (laughs) Should there be any surprise that this miracle of water being transformed by Jesus into wine occurs on the seventh day of John's recreation narrative. I think it's powerful. Now, with that established, let's get into what's happening. Consider first the problem Mary comes to Jesus wanting him to remedy. Consider it. This glorious wedding celebration And keep in mind, a wedding, it's a picture, isn't it? A picture itself of man's relationship with God, this union we have with God. See, this glorious wedding celebration, it was about to be ruined, wasn't it? It was about to be ruined because they had run out of wine. Joy. That beautiful lady had left the celebration. Joy was replaced with sorrow. The party had soured. The celebration about to come to a terrible end. 
people here were left at this celebration with nothing to quench their thirst. The wine was gone. So in an act of pure desperation, Mary wisely goes to the only person she knew had the ability to remedy the problem, her son Jesus. But but then consider the mechanism that Jesus uses to perform the miracle. John is clear. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus would specifically choose six stone water pots used by the Jews for ceremonial purification? They were religious vessels that, interestingly enough, facing a problem, were empty. At best, these stone pots could only hold water for a temporary cleansing. No one would ever dare think to drink from them yet alone to find them holding wine. Secondarily, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus performs the miracle at a distance. Did you notice that? And he specifically performs the miracle via the invitation for servants to participate. Note that it would be through their obedience. Obedience to Jesus' command that Jesus would then in turn perform an an amazing miracle and an act of faith pursuant the instructions of Jesus. These servants, they obey. They take empty vessels. They fill them to the brim. That's faith. And then they draw out water, take that water to the master, and then it transforms into wine. Consider the fundamental nature of the miracle. While Jesus commanded these pots be filled with water, as the master of the feast takes a swig, oh, this water was made wine. At some point, as we've noted in the process, a complete and total transformation of the water took place. The water that Jesus asks these servants to offer it instantly became wine, we know for sure, when it was consumed. Jesus didn't add something to the water to make wine. Jesus transformed water into wine. Are you beginning to maybe pick up on the work Jesus is illustrating here? Any of these things striking a chord? Because of sin, the wedding party... It's in desperate peril. The joy offered by this world, if you've tasted, it always sours. It always goes from good to not so good before ultimately running out. Have you experienced that from what this world offers? And you know, the truth is no man can provide a remedy to that problem. And religion proves to be worthless. Six stone pots presented This wedding, present at this wedding, they only existed to provide water aimed at temporary cleansing of the outward man. It's all it could do. It was all it was there to do. Though the law of Moses incorporated water undoubtedly for a person's outward purification, it could never be used to quench man's inner thirst. This is not the first time we've seen water transformed into things. Note Moses, representing the law, 
Oh, there was a transformation of water, not into wine, but into blood. See, the law only produced judgment. It judged sin, calling upon death. And yet, how amazing that Jesus doesn't turn water into blood, but he turns water into wine, joy and fulfillment. Understand, Jesus, he offers a thirsty world something much different. He offers water that not only purifies a man, but a wine that quenches man's internal thirst, his internal needs. Jesus offers all of us a living water that upon its consumption instantly turns into a wine that yields an individual lasting joy. Have you ever tasted it? I have. And what I love is it's that, a water that turns to wine, that Jesus has called you and I to draw out and give to the world around us. Honestly, it's the reaction of the master of the feast that really says it all, doesn't it? Upon tasting what Jesus offers, he declares, you have kept the good wine until now. You see, the world always offers its best first, knowing in time what it offers sours, and then it runs out. But how amazing this man took one taste. It took one taste for him to know he was drinking something completely different. The entire purpose behind this miracle was to illustrate the reality, the sign, so to speak, that Jesus had come to offer something to this world radically different than religion. He came to offer something to a thirsty world lacking joy. Not only is Jesus' mission focused on providing a lasting internal joy as opposed to a temporary outward cleansing, but what Jesus came to offer you and I, what he came to offer the world, it only gets better and better and better. How cool it is to think Jesus calls his servants to offer this world a drink from a well whose water turns into wine. That Jesus transforms the person, not through ceremonial washing, but through an internal renewing of something we consume. While religion will leave the world outwardly clean, but inwardly thirsty, not so with Jesus. You know, it's not about what we do. It's all about instead what he makes us into. With these things in mind, in the context of what this miracle really represents, doesn't now this statement that Jesus makes, that my hour has not yet come, start to come into view? For me, it does. Though his hour had not yet come, when Jesus would accomplish his ultimate mission to save the world from sin, though the hour had not yet come when his blood would be spilt to redeem and to cleanse, knowing that his, his blood is representative in the communion elements is wine, here by changing the water into wine. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, but I'm going to do something to show you what my hour will look like. And he changes the water into wine. And in a sense, he's giving his disciples a glimpse into what that work would really be, which is why John, writing years later, is like, I didn't get it then. Oh, but I get it now. This is the beginning of signs. 
of what Jesus came to do. On the seventh day of recreation, Jesus was not resting, friend. Rather, he was busy working to save a wedding that lacked wine. What a sign for Jesus to begin with. Now, as we close...